Uh, my name is Steven Myers. I am from Oklahoma City, and typically you come to New York City and the weather's colder, but this time I got to fly into warmer weather. Where, where I live is actually negative 10 degrees right now. Oh, the service here is unmatched. Thank you. Thank you. Now that's perfect. You crushed it. Round of applause. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so happy to be here with you. I, I'm not saying this just because he's not here, but Pastor Jason is like, he's a friend of mine, but he's also like a mentor. Uh, and I don't just throw that word around. Uh, he's been such a gift to me and my ministry and our church. And I also have heard him preach. So I know that you're getting JV squad this morning with me. Um, and and uh, gosh, man, I just, I love that guy. I look up to him so much. So it is a thrill to be here with you. Um, I was on the subway yesterday with my family. We were just trying to figure out how to get around New York City. And I noticed an ad on top of the subway, on top of the train, for a philosophy class that promoted the course by promising to help find calm in the chaos. I don't know if you've seen that. Find calm in the chaos. And I thought, what a perfectly placed ad, because on that particular train, there was an individual who was experiencing some of his own chaos. And uh, I thought, I, I might need to sign up for that class. It, it was great, in the middle of a full train where people are on the move, overly busy, stressed out, trying to make it, there was this promise of peace in chaos. And I bring this up because I think it tapped into something that all of us feel on some level. Chaos and a desire for real peace. And maybe for you, the chaos is external. Maybe it's work right now for you, or the lack of work, or maybe it's busyness, and you're just always on the move, always on the go. If you have kids, there's all these activities to do. Maybe finances are tight. Maybe you have family issues. Maybe it's a myriad of different things. Maybe the chaos is more internal. If you're anything like me, you deal with anxiety and depression, or loneliness, or stress, or, or a number of other things. Most likely... It's both external and internal forces creating the experience of peacelessness in your heart and mind. And so we have this feeling, even as followers of Jesus, of just this deep longing for peace. Now, according to the ad, peace or calm is something that we have to find. You have to go search for it, right? It's like a it's like a cruel game of hide-and-go-seek, if you're familiar with the child's game, the hide-and-go-seek, looking for peace, never to actually find it. And so we tend to look for it in things like money or success or a better job or maybe in different relationships and different religious experiences, different substances to numb or to make us feel different, different communities, cities, vibes, and on and on and on. But what if peace isn't a thing to find but a person to know? What if true peace that surpasses all understanding like God's word promises isn't locked in some sort of vault only with, uh, and only those with the right combinations of experiences and life skills and financial security know the code, but what if it's a gift to receive from the Prince of Peace himself? And so the question I have for you this morning, do you need peace? And do you know the peace giver? I want to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 again. I'm reading out of the ESV, and then I'll pray, and then we'll just look at a few things in this passage. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pray for you. Father, I can speak for myself, but I, but I assume for your other children here in the room, Lord, we need peace. We long for peace, for calm, for rest in our soul. And so, Lord, would you, through your word and by your Holy Spirit, grant us peace today? Holy Spirit of God, would you preach a better sermon than the one I have prepared to our hearts? And would you lift our gaze to Christ because he is worthy of it all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This section of Colossians is known as the Christ hymn. And it was used most likely for, as a hymn of worship in the early church because it teaches the reality of who Jesus is. It's, it's a, a teaching hymn. It shows us who Jesus is, but not just the reality of who Jesus is, but that reality itself is centered on Jesus. And this hymn is divided into two different parts. You see in the, first, uh, the front end of the hymn, it's Jesus the Creator, and in the back end of the hymn, it's Jesus the Redeemer. And in verse 15, Paul makes a couple of stunning statements about Jesus. The first is that he is the image of the invisible God. And that word image in the English is where we get, from the Greek, is where we get the word icon. And there are really two parts to understanding what this word icon means. It's both representation and manifestation. Uh, representation, meaning like if you find a coin, you, you'll find on the coin in, in the U.S. dollars is the inscription or the image of a past president. The same in the ancient world. There was the inscription of the rulers or the leaders of, of Caesar. That wasn't actually the person Caesar. It's a representation and so Jesus, in the same way, is a representation of God. However, that's not enough, because Jesus is more than just a representation. He is the manifestation of God himself, because Jesus is God. In other words, in Christ, the invisible God became visible. The untouchable God became touchable. The infinite God of the universe took on human form in Christ. And he also says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not mean that Jesus had a starting point the way that you and I had a starting point. There was a time when I was not, and then I was born, and now I exist. We were brought into existence. Jesus is altogether different than us. Jesus is God, the image of the invisible God. Therefore, Jesus has always been. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in a manger somewhere in Bethlehem, that wasn't the creation of Christ, but the incarnation of Christ. Jesus was not created. He is creator. So what does firstborn of all creation means? Well, it has to do with the rights 
and inheritance and priority of like a firstborn son. So what the Christ hymn is asserting is that all of creation belongs to Jesus. We could say it this way. The title deed of the cosmos has one name on it, and it's his. I love this quote by, by a man named Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole dom- domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. Every forest, every ocean, every office building, every home, everything happening in Harlem right now, everything happening at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, Washington D.C., it's all his. Now, why can Paul, and why can Kuiper, and why can us today, why can we make this claim about Jesus? Well, because of what it says in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There are three phrases in the ESV that I'm reading out of uh, that express Jesus' relationship to his own creation. And those three phrases are by him, through him, and for him. Each one means something different and communicate a necessary component to how Jesus is the creator of all things. When Paul says that by him all things were created, it means that Jesus thought up creation in all of its complexities. The atoms and the molecules and the galaxies all came from the mind of Christ. Creation is a good idea, and it was his idea. When he says that through him all things exist, it means that Jesus is also the agent of creation. Creation came into being through his power. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you see that the Bible says, God said, let there be light. Jesus, as the agent of creation, made light. He made all that exists. And then for him, Jesus is the goal of creation. Which means that everything that exists, exists to display his glory. Every grain of sand Every flavor, every animal, every tree, every person, whether they know this or not, whether they agree or not, exists by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. But it's not just the visible world, but the invisible world. When Paul speaks of thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, I think he has in mind both kings and parliaments and presidents and earthly rulers, but he's also talking about the spiritual realm. Angels, even fallen angels, were created for the glory of Jesus. And what Paul is doing and what the hymn is teaching us is that there is not one thing in all of creation, visible or invisible, whether tiny and unknown or powerful and non-ignorable, that isn't subject to Jesus. Even the devil himself had to get permission from God before he messed with Job. And everything that happens in creation is under the sovereign control of God and Christ and will result in the glory of Christ and the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So here's the first thing, if you're taking notes or if you're just a really good listener, here's the first thing I want to I point out to you. Reality itself is Christological. Reality is Christological. Here's what that means. Everything points to Jesus, exists for Jesus, and was made by and for Jesus. Jesus. 
And not only do things exist by, through, and for Jesus, all things continue to exist because of Jesus. Verse 17, again, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He he is before all things, means that before creation, Jesus was. Again, here's what Paul is stressing. Jesus is not like creation. He is above it. He is the priority of creation. He is prominent over creation. And if you read any of Paul's letters, what you're going to find is that Paul seems to be really obsessed with Jesus. But I don't think in Paul's mind there's any such thing as being too obsessed with Jesus. I've heard uh, well-meaning Christians have said, I've said this before, Jesus is a big part of my life. Maybe Maybe you feel that way, maybe you've said that. And it sounds really good. Jesus is a big part of my life. Sounds great, right? You, you, you hear someone say that and go, man, they must really be devoted. I think Paul would say, what do you mean he's a part of your life? Jesus is a part of your life? I think he would correct us and he would say, no, no, no. If you are in Christ, he is your life. Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith through Christ. Paul would say that Christ in you is the hope of glory. He is not a part of anything. He is our life. He is the priority of everything. He is the goal, the telos of everything. So often, even in our attempts to speak highly of Jesus we actually reduce him to a supporting role. Jesus isn't the supporting role in your life. He is the writer, the director, the producer, and the star. You don't give the image of the invisible God part of your life. You surrender to him totally. And in verse 17, he also says, in him all things hold together. Here's the good news. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 puts it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you remember last night when you were sleeping? And then you were able to wake up today? It's because Jesus didn't go to sleep. And he kept everything going. Let this be a comfort to you. If he is upholding the universe by the word of his power, it means he is continuing to do that work. He has not stopped caring about his creation. He daily upholds it. He intervenes. He is at work, which means this. Your life matters to Jesus. Like I want you to feel that on a personal level. Your life matters to Jesus. Your children matter. Your marriage matters. Jesus cares about you. Not just in some general sense as a small part of a larger whole of creation. He cares about you specifically. What you're walking through. What you're experiencing. What you're feeling. What you're going through. So much so. That Jesus entered into his own creation. To bring redemption. And this is where Paul goes with this whole hymn, right? He's moving the ball down the field towards The truth that Jesus is not just the creator, he is also the redeemer. Now, let's be honest. There's a tension here that we, we can start to feel. If Jesus created all things, and if he is the priority over all things, and if he is sustaining all things, then why does it feel like there's so much brokenness in the world? Anybody ever think that? 
But why are we constantly confronted with news of war and violence and destruction? Why is there so much pain and suffering that we're seeing on a daily basis? Why do we get depressed? Why do we experience the unraveling of good things? One of the things I love, this is not in my notes, so I just want to say this. One of the things I love about God is that he's so big and so merciful that we can actually come to him with those questions and go, why? And, and oftentimes, God doesn't just give you the answers as if answers would actually ease your suffering. He gives himself in the midst of it all. E even if he could tell you ex exactly why, it wouldn't mean that the pain hurts less. But like a good friend and a, like a good father, he draws near to you. The short answer to why, though, and the most compelling answer I think we have biblically, is this three-letter word, sin. When sin entered the cosmos, it wreaked havoc on creation. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that the reason you experience depression and anxiety is because you sinned and made God mad, and then he struck you with depression and anxiety. That's not what I'm saying. I experience those things personally, and I've heard people say things like that. That's not helpful. I'm saying that the reason that things like depression and anxiety and sorrow and brokenness are part of the human experience is because sin generally has corrupted creation. Now, it may be that your current condition is connected to a pattern of sin that needs to be repented of and confessed and turned over to the Lord, but it also is very likely that life in a broken world is just that. It's broken. This is the reason that for many of us, peace is so hard to come by. I've experienced what the ancients uh, have referred to as the dark night of the soul. And those of you who have experienced the dark night of the soul, you know exactly what I mean when I say dark night of the soul. It's where what David says in Psalm 42 resonates when he writes, My tears have been my food day and night. A dude was struggling. <laughs> but at the end of Psalm 42, David asks a question. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then he preaches to himself, and he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Suffering and sorrow and dark nights of the soul didn't push David farther away from God, but God actually used and redeemed those things to draw him nearer. In your life, brothers and sisters, there are all sorts of trials happening on a regular basis. And the question is, will you run from God or will you run to him? Will you lean on your own understanding, trying to control outcomes and figure things out to try to make your life the version of life you thought it was going to be? Or will you lean into the Father's heart, who is good and does good? But here's what David knows. Here's what Paul knows, and here's what I found to be true in my years of knowing God. God, in his kindness, will allow dark nights to happen, to purify us, and to make us more like his son Jesus, and to draw us deeper into his own heart. What Satan meant for evil in your life, God will turn for good. 
And even in a broken world, you can experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Look again at what, what Paul writes in verses 18 through 20. Let me read it again. So good. And he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the heart of the gospel. Notice again what Paul says about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is both the source of the church and the authority in the church. So in this local expression called New Hope in Harlem, New York City, Jesus is the reason this exists, and it's beautiful and it's good. Theologically, you are not a part of the church or a member of the church because you show up on Sundays, as much as we're glad to see you. You are a member of the church, the body of Christ, by faith in the risen, sovereign Lord Jesus who redeemed you by the blood of the cross. Without Christ, we were all dead in our sins. Look at verse 21. I know it's not in our teaching text, but just go down to verse 21. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Just stop right there. That's our condition apart from Christ. Alienated from God. Hostile towards God actively participating in the works of evil. But, good news, Jesus has reconciled us by his death. So this is what Paul means by Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus died on the cross and was raised. He defeated the enemy of death. Death is the consequence of sin. Sin makes us spiritually dead and cut off from God, leads to physical death and separation from God. But Jesus defeated death through his own death and resurrection. This is why Jesus came. Jesus entered into the brokenness of our humanity to take our sin upon his shoulders, to endure death that we deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. And he did this by making peace by the blood of his cross. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Those ideas don't seem to go together. Peace and the blood of his cross. The cross is violent. It's brutal. It's bloody. No one would have ever looked at a cross of crucifixion and thought to themselves, what a peaceful scene. It represents everything that wars against peace namely sin and death. Yet this is how Jesus brings us peace. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty of sin and died in our place so that we could be reconciled and redeemed. And just a word, if you don't know Jesus, so glad that you're here this morning. But Jesus now stands ready to forgive. He went to the cross for you so that you might have life in his name. And here's the second thing I want you to notice. The next two points are very short, so don't worry. Peace is tethered to Christ. If reality belongs to Jesus and is, is Christological, that means that peace is tethered to Christ. Peace is not the absence of conflict or trouble. How often do we think that? Man, if I could just get my life lined out, if I could just get my ducks in a row, if I could just make everything work out better, and we start trying to control outcomes, right? If I could just force these things to work out in my favor, then peace will happen. But peace is not the absence of conflict or trouble. Peace is the presence of Jesus Jesus himself entered into the world to bring peace. It says that he made peace. And that, that phrase, making peace, means to end all hostilities, primarily between us and God. Sin, death, and the devil war against peace. 
but Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross, which means this, that the only way to truly experience peace is through Christ. So brothers and sisters, the pursuit of peace through money, through relationships, through new age techniques and practices, through medicine, all of those things, some of those things are really good and they're common grace gifts from God, but they can't actually accomplish true peace because peace is not a thing, it's a person named Jesus. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So peace cannot be experienced outside of Christ. I want to just lovingly point out something to all of us because there are many of you who are Christians, but you do not experience peace in your life. And so you might be thinking to yourself, what is this guy talking about? Peace in New York City? I think it's very peaceful here. Later in Colossians, Paul gives us some practical wisdom. He writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's a word for us. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, thanks, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The reason many of us don't experience peace is because what rules our hearts is not Christ, but the things of the world. Can we admit that? And Paul is addressing the whole church, not just individuals, but this can be applied to every person in the room. It should not surprise us. I'll just use myself as an example, and you can agree with me or not agree with me if this is true for you. It should not surprise me that when I, what I feast on is social media and Netflix and music that is devoid of Jesus. It, it shouldn't surprise me that when I'm doing that constantly, that's what I'm feeling my life with, that I don't experience the peace of Christ. And my concern for many of us is that the first thing that we grab in the morning when we wake up and the last thing that we look at before we go to bed is our phone. And what we're allowing to dwell richly in us is not the word of Christ, but the things of the world. There's, there's data coming all over the place, and not just from Christian communities, but from secular institutions that show the correlation between social media and anxiety and depression. I, I'm not a professional in that world at all, but I think it's something we need to pay attention to. And what's happened in the church is we have more people discipled by TikTok and Instagram than by Scripture. And so no wonder we tend to be a peaceless people. And for my church, I think one of the things that's happening is we are entertaining ourselves to death. Now, I'm not saying that accounts for everything, but I do believe we're in a crisis right now. Satan is fine with you calling yourself a follower of Christ just so long as you don't actually spend any time with Jesus. Here's the last thing, and then we'll close. Christ will establish peace. This is a promise. There is an eschatological undertone to the Christ hymn, and here's what that means. The direction of human history is Christward. Jesus will make all things new. 
Jesus will once and for all defeat Satan, sin, and death and do away with his enemies. And he will come again to establish peace on earth because he will be present with us for all of eternity. Peace has come in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but the Prince of Peace is coming again. This is what theologians refer to as the already but not yet. That Jesus has already done the work on the cross and he has already ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is intervening. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now as we speak? He is praying for us. Isn't that incredible? He is interceding on our behalf before the Father. My feeble attempt to preach a good sermon is going up to the heavens, and Jesus is saying, he's doing his best. He's working for us. But the kingdom has not yet been consummated, not totally fulfilled. And so we are in this waiting period. But it's not like we're in a waiting room just twiddling our thumbs until our name gets called. We're waiting with anticipation, and that is an active waiting. So I just want to give us a couple of points of application, hopefully that will help you experience more peace in your life. And I just want to say this. When I say experiencing peace, it's not like if you're a really good Christian, you should always be peaceful, right? That's unrealistic, and it might cause you to doubt whether or not you're really a Christian, There are moments where you experience peace, and then there's a lot of moments where I don't experience peace. What I'm saying is that Jesus is our peace. And so it's not an attempt to go try to find it or realign certain things in our life. What it is, it's a call to realign realign ourselves to him. So here's a couple of points of application. Number one, enter into the peace of Christ by meditating on his word. Brothers and sisters, you need a Bible diet You need to be feasting on his word, taking in his word, dwelling on it richly. I know know in this church there is a high premium on the word of Christ. Let me encourage you to continue to deepen your love for the word of God. Here's the second thing. Practice the peace of Christ by becoming a peacemaker. Sometimes I feel like it's a passive thing where it's like, I just want peace to happen to me. Sometimes God is calling you to be the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. We partner with Christ in establishing peace by living as peacemakers in an anxious age. I'm sure you live by people, work with people, know people who are really struggling, and God might be calling you as one of his agents of peace to be a peacemaker in that situation so that they might see that Jesus really is good. Here's a couple of ways that you can be practicing the peace of God. Number one, through prayer. Two, walking by the Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to lead, guide, and direct us and to walk by the Spirit. Number three, be quick to confess sin. Have you ever noticed how quick we are to confess the sin of others, but not our own? I'm really good at confessing other people's sin for them. That does not make peace. That actually wars against peace. Uh, my, uh, the other day at my house, my kids' clothes were on the floor, and I said out loud, I'm so sick, and my daughter's in here, she's, she's going to laugh at this, I said, I'm so sick of my kids leaving their clothes laying around, and then I walked into my bathroom where I had a pile of my own dirty laundry, <laughs> and it hit me, just because my dirty laundry isn't as visible doesn't make it any less dirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
I'm upset at their dirty laundry, but I'm fine with my own. We get mad at the sin of others, but we have often grown too comfortable with our own. So let me ask you this question. Do you want greater peace in your home, in your life, in your church, in your relationships? Stop pointing out other people's dirty laundry. Start taking your own to Christ. And here's the last thing, and then then we'll close. Go to war against anxiety through worship. The Christ hymn is about the worship of Christ. It's about the exaltation and the praise and the adoration of Jesus. It lifts our eyes and our hearts to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Anxiety tends to happen, and I'm talking about general anxiety and the lack of peace. I'm not talking about clinical things. There's, there's some different things that, by God's common grace, he has given us uh, medicine and doctors and counselors and therapists that we have access to. But anxiety tends to happen when we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them squarely on our problems. Peace happens when we take our eyes off of the world and our problems and put them back on Jesus, who has overcome the world, who reigns sovereignly over the world, and who makes peace by the blood of his cross. The antidote to peacelessness isn't trying to control everything to work better. It's worship. It's worship. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that lead us to thanksgiving to God and living a life of worship that is directed to Christ. What we do in here on a Sunday morning when we're singing songs ought to lead us into a sort of life where we're working and playing and doing all the things we do for the glory of God. So peace isn't some elusive experience or an idealistic lifestyle. It's a person who came into the darkness of the world and who will come again to restore all things.